I had huckleberry pie for breakfast. I had nothing I, for I, breakfast. I, I, I point this out as a way of saying, neener, neener, I had huckleberry pie and you didn't. <laughs> have, you, have you had huckleberry pie before? Yes, or when I was in Montana for the SEP class last year. It was the oh. first time I had had huckleberry pie. And and was it amazing and awesome? It was delicious. It's uh, it is something where it's like it's usually when you get it, it's it's ex- freakishly expensive because of course you you cannot domesticate huckleberries. You can only pick them in the wild. So you have to go way out into the woods, and everybody's got their private, super secret huckleberry patch where they get huckleberries. And um, so it's uh, um, yeah, uh, a, a rare treat. Now it's it's a little bit like a blueberry, but I think it's uh, far far better. But we're not talking about Huckleberry City. We're going to talk about Botany in a Day, the book, by Thomas J. Elpel. And uh, um, part something or another in our series. And today uh, we're going into the pink subclass. Oh, and I should say that uh, uh, it's me, Paul Wheaton, uh, with Neil Bertrando. Hi, Neil. Hi, Paul. So, uh, and, and the reason why they call it the pink subclass is because of pink carnations, I believe. I do not know. I mean, like, so, um, and I'm kind of, we, you know, so we were kind of talking about this, and I'm kind of thinking, like, well, what is the thing that I want to get out of this book? And originally, when we started doing these, I thought that I was just going to finish the book with this amazingly rich vocabulary with all the scientific names for all the plants that um, I spend time with. And I'm finding that that's really not what this book is about, nor is that going to happen. And, um, however, one thing I do feel like at this point, we're about a third of the way through the book, one of the things that I'm starting to get the hang of, but just barely, is the, um, the, the order of the orders. The, um, so it's, it's division, class, subclass, order, genre, species. I think you left out um, the, uh, the thrust of this book, which is the family. Oh, did I leave out family? I did leave out family. You're right. See, I, evidence that I do suck at this. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, there's a right. great um, mnemonic device that I was taught um, that starts with kingdom, and it goes down through the different hierarchical categories. So it it goes, King David can only find good salami. And you can make up anyone you want, but that one works for me. And so now I remember kingdom, division, class, order, family, genre, or genus, and species. King David can only find good salami. Okay. Um, so now I, I found the page, in my, and mine is page five. I went back, and I found it where they've got this list. And so um, it's... And then they, and so the, your mnemonic leaves out subclass, which apparently is always there. Well, there's always going to be subs potentially in, in between each category in the hierarchy. Uh, really? So there so are sub, sub, suborders. There's suborders, there's subfamilies. You know, there's, there's these different subs, and then. Subgenus? It just depends on how many uh, different organisms are in. Uh, the class level versus the order level, for example, and if there's some specific 
enough difference between a large group of them that they want to divide them. Okay. Well, in in this list in the in this book, what what this book is trying to teach us is that your mnemonic sucks. Now, in, in another book, in in the book of Neil, your mnemonic is fucking awesome. But in this book, it seems to suggest that there are no subdivisions, and then there, but there is a sub. There is always a subclass. There is no suborder, and un, and then under family, family can be further broken down by subfamily and tribe. But it's kind of an optional thing. At least that's what it looks like in this. On, for me, it's page five on this thing. So it, it shows division. There's like there's always division, class, subclass, order, family, sometimes subfamily, sometimes tribe, always genus and species. Okay, and and for me, I just make sure that um, I group them into something useful. And if you use my mnemonic device, you can always remember that subclass is between class and order, right? Because it's subclass. Right, so, right, right. So you don't necessarily need to remember that one. Um, and you can just place it in there. <laughs> this is hard! <laughs> and, oh. and uh, you know, I think the important thing is that there's, you know, functional differences at each level. And, and uh, in particular, the, the most discrete functional differences occur at the family level, uh, which allows us to put together groups of species with different families and creates some pretty important functional diversity in a plant polyculture, like different disease resistances, different pollinators and insect or animal habitats, different mineral usages, yet many of the families still have edible or highly useful plants. So we can get away from uh, the monoculture at the family level, not just the species or genus level, and functionality often occurs at a family level. So now I think um, another thing is when, before we started recording the podcast, one of the things you were pointing out to me is that while um, this this book seems to be dominantly organized by family, so like each section is a family. Um, so we you know so at the top of each so we got, when we have a section about a family at the top, it talks about flowering plants division, dicotyledon class, pink subclass, pink order. And then it's like, and I'm looking at the page for the cactus family, um, and and so you were saying that um, there are a lot of families that are not in this book at all, and and I wonder if there's entire subclasses or orders not in this book also. There may be, and and the reason that Thomas Elpel gives for that is that a lot of those. Uh, families are represented only in the tropics. And so for his uh, preferred target demographic um, being in the uh, northern North America and then extending throughout North America um, in a little bit broader sense, the tropical families are not as useful because there's really only a couple places in North America where you even have the possibility of growing tropical plants, uh, small areas in southern Florida, and then potentially, you know, microclimates along the Gulf Coast and maybe along uh, coastal California. And when you say North America, you're leaving out Mexico, right? That's correct. I would consider Mexico part of the uh, Mesoamerica, the, the Central American uh, isthmus that connects North and South America. Okay. All right. All right. So, um, uh, all right. Moving on to uh, 
dicotyledon class, pink subclass, pink order, cactus family. So, when, you know, on the next page, we're going to get to the pink family, which, you know, so this is, this is, I just kind of feel like it's a little odd that this whole subclass, which um, is, I mean, it's the pink subclass, which is all we're going to talk about today. And all of these plants, including several plants that I really like, they all get to have this name because of carnations. <laughs> really? The carnation was found to be like the big one in, in this, like, ooh, yeah, everything circle around the carnation on this one. <laughs> really? That's it? Uh, so anyway, all right, all right, fine, fine, we'll be that way. All, I, wonder if, I wonder, you know, it would be cool if for the pink subclass, if they would say, why it's called the pink subclass? Why is that such a big deal? Like, are all of them have, do all of them have pink blossoms? I don't think that they do. I'm sure that they don't. Well, it's not the coloration of the blossom uh, that creates the differentiation at the subclass level. And unfortunately, I'm not that sophisticated with botany to know what they're using to divide plants at that uh, level of organization. So, uh, but it, it's not, and also pink doesn't mean the color. Pink is just a type of, uh, it's a family of plants we'll get to. And it, it's a type of flower shape in particular. Uh, so... Maybe the carnation was just the most well-known or potentially at some point the most economically important um, within this section. And so a lot of plants fell into that um, because they had similar characteristics. For example, well, um, you know, cactus is a, a North American plant. It's, it was actually originated in North America and, and South America, the New World, sorry. Uh, not not just North America, but the Americas. And... Uh, so when plants really started getting named, which I think originated with uh, Charles Linnaeus when he traveled around the world and created kind of the the nomenclature for different species of plants and animals and other organisms, uh, th this would be a lesser known plant. Um, whereas you know people in the the Western tradition uh, would be more readily associating with plants that they knew from. Uh, Europe or the Mediterranean region or the, the Middle East and, and North Africa and those sorts of things. So now, with, within this within this pink subclass, we are later going to talk about rhubarb, buckwheat, amaranth, also called pigweed, uh, and lamb's quarters, um, which are like the uh, the plants out of the pink subclass that I like. Maybe that would be a, a way to do a different podcast is like, today we're going to talk about the pink subclass, but we're going to talk about only the plants that I think are really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll go into detail about those. But, okay, all right, we'll, we'll cover all. So cactus. Now, a couple of nights ago, I attended an event at the Missoula County Extension Office where a woman was giving a presentation on... Um, uh, native wild edibles and their history, um, so as ethnobotany, um, and and so she's a, a member of the uh, Blackfeet tribe, and so she was uh, uh, talking about um, how she was taught by her aunt and her grandmother the traditional means of harvesting and preparing um, foods that were growing here long before white folks showed up. And um, so she's had like this. It sounds like this immense amount of experience doing this, and and all most of her experience is like understanding the names, the the, the Blackfeet name 
for these plants. And one of the plants was a cactus. And they ate the leaves and the blossoms. And it, and it kind of showed them harvesting it. And uh, um, a pic- there, was, there was one picture of the prep where they're just kind of cutting it into long, like taking those big flat leaves, those thick, flat, succulent leaves, and, and cutting them into strips And in order to prepare them. I, I just kind of thought, I never knew you could eat a cactus leaf. <laughs> So, um, uh, and here in here in the Missoula area, I, I I cannot recall having seen a cactus. Um, although it would not surprise me to see a cactus, but I do know that there are parts of Montana where I have seen cactus, but just not around here. And I can I can imagine out east the the cactus being very common in eastern Montana. Um. The one thing I marked off in here is that um, uh, is, is one species, pincushion cactus is rare in Montana. The plant and, plant and fruit is edible raw or cooked. Um, and so that was a lot of what this woman was talking about the other night. But Nice. Uh, so just I'm going to uh, kind of note a, a semantic difference in that my understanding is that the large fleshy parts of the cactus are actually stem tissue and that the spines are um, a specialized form of leaf. Uh, so that, you know, it, which is interesting to me. I had never really thought of spines as leaf until I, I heard that. Usually when I see woody tissue, I don't think of it as leaf. I think of it as stem. But this is kind of the reverse. They have these woody type of tissues that are their leaves, and then their stem tissue is the kind of more fleshy tissue of the plant. Um, to me, the, the cactus are really interesting. Um, in particular, I like Opuntia, the prickly pear cactus, uh, because it, it grows across a, a wide range of, of climate types. And cactus, have because they're succulents, they have a, a whole lot of water in their tissue, which means that they can be used as thermal mass and protect, potentially protect plants from frosts and things like that that are traveling. They, you know, they'll, they'll keep the air around a certain microclimate a little bit warmer um, or cooler. Ooh, I didn't know that. Now, of course, you know you're in desert country. You're in serious desert country. So, cactuses are probably a lot more common where you are. Uh, not quite as much uh, be- as as you might think, because we get so cold. And in general, as you get colder, the cactus uh, become less abundant because they have so much water and they are susceptible to freezing when you get to really low temperatures. Uh, so, so we pretty much have. Uh, we do have a puntia, but they're relatively small. They're not like the really nice Nepalis cactus like you find in the southwest. Um, and they have really large spines and, and small fruits also. So they're, they're tricky to really prepare and eat effectively, in a, in a, especially in a time-effective manner. Um, when you get just a little bit further south into warmer climates, then they become you, you get a much larger variety, which is easier to prepare, potentially, potentially forms a large hedge or, or you know, shrubby row that you can create uh, some other functional characteristics out of. You know, that would be an excellent photo, back to what you were talking about, about holding heat, is something where it's like, okay, it snowed, and then on the left side, there are not these cactuses, and there's snow. And on the right side, there's a bunch of these cactuses, and there's less snow or no snow because their warmth melted the snow. Right, Or and... Uh if you had, for example, some really frost-sensitive plants like tomatoes or something out 
and planted in one area and then planted in another area that's surrounded by these cactus that protect it from maybe a frost movement, then it'd be neat to also see, you know, how protective, how much protection it did create for a frost-sensitive plant. Right, right. Ooh, wait, I just saw something here that I hadn't marked up. The spines of some species were once used as phonograph needles. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting, too. It's it's nice to know that (laughs) (laughs) not everything requires metal that we're necessarily interested in uh, from a a technological standpoint. And we often use the spines to uh, seal uh, natural pots. Like uh, when I was in Hawaii, we would take cactus spines or spines of other plants and use them to... uh, stick together banana leaves to make pots for putting potting up plants or producing seedlings or those sorts of things so that you know if you could even use them to put uh prick together some newspaper or something like that to make some small pots to start seedlings with huh wild all right i'm ready to go on to the next family are you ready uh that sounds good to me yep okay the next family is the pink subclass pink order pink family Pink, 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 pink. And it's Caryophyllaceae um, is the name of it. I name. believe you, Caryophyllaceae. That would be correct, yes. <laughs> I win. <laughs> um, uh, many species of the family contain at least a small amount of saponin, most notably the soapwort plant. Plants with a significant saponin content can be mashed in water and used as a soap substitute. Now, I kind of think like I, I don't understand why he used the word so substitute, and why not why not mashed in water and used as soap? That, um, I don't know either. Uh, I, I know when, when you do the saponin thing and you're mashing it in water and whatnot. I know that it's like it, it you, you end up with sudsy soapy water. But it's not like a really, it's not, you can't ever get it to the point that it's so concentrated in soap that you can use it like the way that we're used to using soap. Yeah, but I'm guessing it would still, you know, break down oils and stuff. The main property of soap is that it's a a surfactant. That's the main functional property, in my understanding. And so the the chemical that creates a soap that's um, actually cleaning you has both a a hydrophilic and a hydrophobic component, meaning that it has a, a water-friendly and a non-water-friendly component. So it can both interact with water and things like oils and other part- particulates that aren't soluble in water, and it makes those things soluble, and so they wash off. And so, From my um, <clears throat> feeble memory about uh, chemistry, I always seem to remember that um, it was a chain, uh, and I believe it was a carbon chain, but it was a, a chain, nonetheless, a change of, mole- of, of elements in the molecule. So it's a molecule, soap is a molecule that's a long chain of something, and on one end is a water-loving piece, and on the other end is an oil-loving piece. Right. And because the oil and the water, they don't like each other, and they like to stay far away from each other. And, and so um, what would happen is is that once you, when you, if you uh, have oily bits on your hands, you go to wash your hands with water. The oily bits and the the, wa- the water is repelled. The oily bits stay stuck to your hand. But if you introduce soap, and then you rub the soap all over your hands onto the oily bits, then it gets all these chains all glommed onto the um, the oily bits. And then you go and you run water on it, and then it grabs hold of the water, and it pulls the oil off of your hand. 
Yeah, so from, from a systems perspective, this would be a, an edge interface technology. It's a bridge between two um, unlike components, and it allows them to interact. And that, that's what you have, yeah, well, the oil and the water. Yes, yes. So um, I would think, I mean, the, so the, the thing where I'm coming up with is here is why, why do we say a, so, a soap substitute? Unless we're saying soap is like a concentration of saponins. I mean, basically, when you make soap, aren't you effectively trying to build, make a concentrate of saponin? Like when you're using a lye-based recipe, which my understanding is that you cannot make soap without lye. And, and I hope I'm wrong about that. But it's like the only naturally occurring way of having soap without having lye is through plants that have saponins in them. So, anyway, the, the pink family, loaded with this stuff, apparently. Although, an interesting thing is, is that one of the pink family, the, the probably, and after going through the whole list, there's only one that I recognize and I seem to give a shit about, and that's um, chickweed. Yeah, a common wild edible plant. Yeah, uh, the common chickweed is an import from Europe. Sometimes the green plants can be found growing in the midst of winter in the snow-free space underneath the trees. The whole plant is edible and delicious as a salad green or pot herb. Chickweed. <laughs> I don't know what yours, what yours says, but mine says ha. Chickweed ha. But, uh... I'm sure that that's a typo. Uh, demulcent, diuretic, laxative, and mildly anti-inflammatory properties. The poultice or tincture is used externally to reduce swellings from sprains or arthritis or smooth minor burns. Uh, it contains at least some saponin. So, but but chickweed is something I've eaten several times, and I think it's delicious. And in fact, when I when I ate at the uh, the herb farm where it's that extremely expensive dinner, they they served chickweed as part of the of the meal. Um so I, I don't know. I think I've eaten chick chickweed several times, I think it's good. I think it's and I'm not a big fan of greens typically. Yeah, that uh, you know that's a great aspect of a lot of these kind of wild edibles is that you have a wider variety of, of uh taste palette uh, rather than just kind of with the more common taste associated with greens. So they Definitely add to that, and also, you know, wider potential series of climates or habitats they can grow in. You know, and that was something, too, that was mentioned at that event the other night uh, where the, the Blackfeet woman was talking, and, and that was that the taste buds of, um, of Blackfeet folk like bitter stuff a lot more than what, um, you know, the European folks seem to be into. Uh, the imports seem to be into so and but but for a lot of this food then then I, you know when you start talking about wild edibles I do think palatability is an important thing but it's like I think when people first start considering eating wild foods I think that their first thought is is that all wild foods taste terrible because if they were any good then they'd be available at the grocery store or we would find them on our pizza regularly but, you know, the fact that we don't find them on our pizza at what your favorite pizza place is because they don't, they, because they taste terrible. They're awful. They're not palatable. But I don't think that's the case. I think that there's a lot of these wild foods which um, I think taste better than, than most of the greens that you can find at your grocery store. Yeah, and um, I, I agree. And, and one of the the things that is very different about wild foods than domesticated foods is that, 
there's a, a wider range of diversity in expression. So some might taste really good and others might taste really bitter. Uh, and one, one of the things that has come up to, that's been uh, introduced to me recently is uh, a book by a woman named Carol Deppy, and it's called Breeding Your Own Plant Varieties. And uh, from, from wild foods, it's much easier to breed new varieties because there's a wide range of plants out there. Uh, and domestic plants, it's harder because they've already been bred to a point where they're expressing something that we really desire. Um, so, so we have the opportunity to get some really tasty wild foods if we actually go out and search for them. Um, and one example of something that's kind of in, in the in-between range is uh, the edible mulberry leaf. And uh, But in order to find ones with edible leaves, you have to go and search different varieties and then take cuttings and cultivate those. Okay. I get it. I get it. I think you're under attack by dogs. You might want to check. I am. I'm not sure. Okay. okay. Sounds All good. Right. Okay. Right. <clears throat> back, dogs. Back. Back. All right. Um, um, I'm, I'm ready. Are, do you have anything else you want to point out in the pink family? Oh, you're off to go check. All right. Um, all right. So you got those dogs under control? Yes. Uh, they have been corralled and entertained <laughs> by something else. <laughs> Cats. Aren't they great? <laughs> <laughs> and birds <laughs> and birds right <laughs> so uh so anyway the pink family got any last words yeah uh, the, one of the other things i thought was really interesting is that uh the saponins can be used to poison fish or stupefy them so they can float to the surface and are easy to catch and harvest and i thought that that's a really interesting use of a plant to then not directly act as a food but be used to harvest more food I I always thought an interesting thing is like when we talk about um, native plants, and I do think it's important to understand like what plants were here 400 years ago. Um, I, but but um, my favorite plant to talk about as a native plant is not a native plant, and that would be um, uh, mullen, Verbascum thapsus, uh, and and so with mullen. <clears throat> Which is not part of the uh, subclass that we're talking about today, but um, uh, they called it uh, the, the, the native folk called it white man's footprints, and uh, um, they found like 30 different uses for the plant, and it seems to me like they they immediately utterly embraced it. And one of the things that they would do is to take the seeds, grind it up, um, spread it on water, and then it would stun fish. And then the fish would float to the surface, and then they would pick out the fish. Um, kind of like what, what, you're, uh, what we're talking about now for stuff in the pink family. Um, and I, I just kind of think like um, uh, I, we, we keep talking about native plants, and there's people that are like so hell-bent on native plants that they, they want to – well, one thing is, is that it seems to me that there's a lot of push behind native plant stuff for the sake of herbicides. I agree. And um, the herbicide companies are like putting huge amount of money into supporting these native plant groups. And then the native plant groups, then the, the big thing that they do is they go out and they buy tons of herbicides. And, and they're trying to kill everything that's not native. And I kind of feel like, you know, I don't think that that's quite in the spirit of what the native folks were into. 
I think the native folks were, in, you know, into like, you know, appreciating pretty much everything. In fact, one of the plants we think of as a native is was considered by many of the native folks to be like one of the worst weeds, and that would be the Douglas fir tree. And and so they, I mean, they would burn the Douglas fir regularly to get it out of the areas where they're trying to, you know, their canvas prairies. So um, I I think that in the meantime, you know, mullen comes in and it's an awesome plant, and and it seems to me like the native folks utterly embraced it as like what a fantastic plant. So um, I don't know. I I kind of feel like native folks are for you know their their mission is was in the past, and I think. I like to think still is um, uh, a symbiotic relationship with nature. And, um, you know, this whole thing about what plants have shown up more recently um, uh, doesn't seem to be a bother. I mean, after all, over the last 10,000 years, 10,000 years ago, there was kind of like in this area, nothing but a few mosses, really. And so that means all plants that were here 400 years ago were at some point invasive and nude the area. And it's just, you know, so now with so much travel going on, I think, I think we're getting a little too homogenous. We're getting a lot of plants coming from all over the world that are showing up and getting started and getting a foothold here, as well as many other places. But it's like, um, it's, it's not necessarily an awful thing. And and even though it, some people would like to be able to see places that represent what was here 400 years ago, I, I don't think that the use of herbicides is justified. I think that the downsides of herbicide outweigh the upsides of having um, a few acres dedicated as a museum piece of what things were like a few hundred years ago. I, That's just rude and obnoxious opinion. Yeah, I'm a, I totally agree with you uh, on a lot of that. And I may differentiate on some details, but to me, there there's no static state in nature. It's always in some sort of dynamic equilibrium. You know, there's always shifts in populations and different species compositions. And what I strive for in my work and also try to communicate to, to others is that what we're really searching for is a, a healthy functioning of an ecosystem. So the specific plants that compose it are, are less important than the fact that there's uh, integrated and interconnected biodiversity, uh, that there's you know, good, healthy water cycle, meaning that there's not a lot of erosion and that the water soaks in and is stored on the land, that there's uh, a lot of energy flow in the system, meaning that there's a lot of photosynthetic capacity, uh, and that there's good mineral cycling, meaning that there is actual soil being built. There, there is cover, cover and litter on the land, and that that there is topsoil and organic matter being built, and that there's mineral availability for the plants and animals. And, and those things, to me, are more important than whether or not there's one invasive species or not. And I think that the classic example of the, the kind of poor judgment of managing for one species is the tamarisk becoming the preferred nesting habitat of the willow flycatcher, an endangered species. So now you have an invasive species that has an endangered species nesting in it, and you, how, you can't kill one without killing the other, but you're not legally allowed to do both of the things of which you're legally required to do. Um, so the invasive species can be good. That Jeff Lawton calls them hardworking immigrants, uh, meaning that they're coming in to do a job that no one else wants to do or no one else has the capacity to do in the native ecosystem. And I think that that you know may have some lack of truth in some areas, but what what I think is going on is that there's 
a symptom of poor management of an ecosystem. And so somewhere where there's a deficiency or, or an issue going on, you see potentially a, a bunch of invasive species or a, something tending towards a monoculture that's working to fix it. And that often we respond too quickly and don't allow the time for the ecosystem to develop and heal itself because we see a perceived endpoint that might not be um, what's realistic given the parameters. But that's you know my rant on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I've got a, I've got a, uh, you know I've I've got a ton more to say in this space. Also, in fact, I think I already have a uh, one of my earliest podcasts is with Helen Atow when we talk about native species. And, I, and I, you know I think I, I like what Toby has to say on the topic of uh, native to win, as well as the whole concept of like uh, people. Uh, you know, what do you eat? What you know? What, what are the foods that you eat? And it's, it's probably going to be that 98% of the food that any the, the most native, the biggest native advocates. 98% of the food that they eat is probably not native, and and some people work really really hard to eat lots and lots of only natives, and then still they're probably only you know augmenting their diet by 10% with natives. Yeah, and and I the, the final thing I have to say in this space is that I think that there's. Uh, a perception that either something has to be pristine wilderness or that it is totally destroyed by human activity. And that, in my opinion, there is a, a participatory ecology that exists in between those two where we are directly and fundamentally a part of the landscape process and that we can interact with it in a way that is resource generating and also beneficial and healing to the ecosystem health. And that's the, the place that permaculture takes us, ideally, I think, and that any other real, real regenerative land management and uh, societal uh, culture uh, and technique and strategy will position us in because we, we are part of the landscape, and if we aren't acting beneficially in it, um, then you know, that, that is a feedback we need. And to say that just because we leave it alone and don't go there means that it, becomes, that it maintains itself in a healthy state, I think, is somewhat naive. Yeah, I, and I also kind of think that you know if we if we're going to say that 400 years ago, what were the, what was the state 400 years ago, and and if we could imagine for a moment that we never invented the boat, um, kind of a thing like like uh, for some reason there's no boats, there's no planes, there's no real way to get over uh, to um, America for the Europeans to come over. So like let's say that then I would say that. Um, uh, a lot of the species that are currently being considered as invasives in this area, um, you know, would have shown up anyway with without any European stuff. And so then, I mean, if we if we come up with like a uh, hundred species of plants that would have shown up as invasives in the last four years that we're currently saying are not native, I mean, what do we classify those plants as? They would have shown up anyway. And and so it's like you know is it is it appropriate to to classify them as invasives or as non-natives? You know they, they would have you know if if we just if Europeans showed up here 400 years later would these plants have have been the natives at that point in time? I think that's a valid area of study. Yeah, uh, and. I mean, I, I like the approach that they can be useful and that potentially we can achieve a a diverse landscape that includes some of these non-native plants and, and acknowledges the contribution that they have to offer. So let's uh, um, 
I'm ready to move on to the next family. You ready to move on to the next family? That sounds great to me. Okay. Uh, uh, the next family is the Purslane family. So this is going to be the Dicotyledon class, pink subclass, pink order, Purslane family, Portulacaceae. Yeah, and that, that comes from one of the more uh, recognized plants, the Portulaca plant or Purslane. Yeah, and I've eaten purslane, um, and has, it's been a while since I've eaten any. I haven't even seen any in a long time. But I I like eating purslane. I think it has like this really good texture. It's kind of crisp. It's got a little. It's got a kind of a crunch to it. It's a cr- got a, got a kind of a crisp to it, but it's it's tender and crisp at the same time. Yeah, and it's got a little bit of sour because it's got that oxalic acid content to a degree, and and some other vitamins and oils. It's a, I think a really great food. Portulaca yeah. oleraceae is the uh, the plant that we're familiar with as purslane, and it also has a bunch of water in it, so it's great as a, a hydrator. And if you're, you know, if it's in some of your kind of perimeter uh, zone two to zone three, it can act as a really good ground cover uh, because it's got all that water in it. And again, water is good thermal mass, so it can moderate the soil temperatures that way. So I, for the entire family, I marked off this one little bit. Many plants in the family contain some amount of oxalic acid, resulting in a mild lemon-like taste. Most plants in the family are edible, except that excess consumption of oxalic acid can block the body's ability to absorb calcium. Um, and, and it seems like for the pink subclass that there were, you know, that note was repeated a lot. You know, the oxalic acid. It may contain some oxalic acid, which can, you know, absorb calcium and make you sad. Right, yeah. And that that often gives it a really, really sour taste. And then sometimes there's the concentration of oxalic acid or oxalate crystals is so high that it it can literally kill you or cause such a bad swelling that you can't breathe or things like that. Of a, a bad day of an extreme order. Yes, definitely. That whole death thing. You only get to do it once. Yeah. I think, ironically, often those crystals are calcium oxalate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like waving the calcium in your face. Neater, neater, neater. Yeah. <laughs> um, the good with the bad, you right? You can't have any. <laughs> so <clears throat> in in this, I've, I've marked off three different species or Actually, three different genres. So, for example, the first one is bitterroot, but apparently there are 15 species of bitterroot, four of which are in Montana. Um, so I need to make sure I'm using my language right here. Um, but bitterroot has a well-known history as one of Montana's premier native food crops. In an experiment, I collected over a gallon of the whole plants in a one-hour harvest in May. Trimming away the vegetation left, approximately 1.5 quarts of roots. Peeling off the bitter bark took another eight hours. The peeled roots cook up nicely in a stew. They are starchy, gelatinous, and filling. However, it is important to remove all of the red bark, even a little bit, will make the whole stew bitter beyond edibility. All right, so now, um, uh, you know, we have the uh, Bitterroot Valley south of Missoula, and the state flower for Montana is the Bitterroot. 
Um, and and uh, when, oh, I saw the presentation the other night. Bitterroot was a, a big feature, and and I've eaten bitterroot before, and it was like eating um, spaghetti noodles. Um, and I don't remember any particular flavor. Maybe it was you know properly uh, prepared, um, but uh, uh, it it doesn't look like something that would be a big food producer. It's it doesn't look like like when, when you think about a root, it's not like a a carrot. Like oh, it's a big fat root. No, it's it's like the little little thin roots. They're, they're like I don't know, an eighth of an inch thick, quarter of an inch thick. They're pretty thin. Wow. <laughs> and it's like I don't I don't think you're gonna get a lot of food off of that. But that was one of the big things to harvest. Yeah, well, this may be you know one of those opportunities where uh, depending on how domesticated it was by uh, the the native populations, that you could find a, a bitterroot plant individual that has you know uh for or a small population that has uh the outer bark of the root is really easy to peel off or it's really thin or it's less bitter or something like that and that could be propagated and it could be bred to the point that that it actually is a, a more uh, useful or at least easier to harvest a more productive food plant uh, because it is potentially wild and not very domesticated uh, and something I thought was pretty interesting is he gives several examples of you know, these kind of harvesting times and techniques and quantities. And, for example, on Claytonia, which is another plant in this uh, family, uh, he talks about the small potato-like roots are edible, raw, or cooked. I can harvest about a cup of roots per hour of work, and it is very much worth the effort. Now, to me, a cup in an hour is not that much food. And so I think that, <laughs> yeah. that demonstrates some of the lack of potential commercial viability of, of some of these as, as edibles. Uh, however, uh, that might just be a processing issue or a harvest issue. Um, and at the same point, it also, uh, I think, creates a, a more of a differentiation between kind of sustenance type of farming and hunting and gathering and then commercial viability, uh, which is important, I think, to recognize when we're talking about usefulness of plants in the permaculture world. Some are going to be more on the, the commercial side of things uh, and opportunities for us in that sector of operation, and others are going to be more on, like, the sustenance and how do we create these ecosystems, uh, which might be a little bit more lasting in the lower, um, lower maintained areas, uh, and so that we have this diversity of, of food supply and, and also kind of places to go if some of our commercial systems uh, don't operate effectively over long periods of time. So now, boy, I, I, as you're saying that, I came up with like five different things I just needed to say. But, but one was is that at the presentation the other night uh, with the Blackfeet woman, then uh, she was saying um, uh, something about, you know, you try and you, you get these books that are out now that will tell you about how to identify plants. And she says, you know, all of my training, it's like, you know, how we identify them is completely different from what's in the books because we're going out and we're harvesting them at a time when they're not in bloom. And most of these books, they, they teach you how to identify the plant based upon the blossom. And, and so, but, but the time when they're best to harvest, they don't look anything like any of the pictures that are, are in these books. So it's you know we you need you need new books you white people <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that have a, a direct functional relationship with the landscape you know, I think that that to me is something that often is lacking in, in kind of our, our Western reductionist mentality is like we want to identify things and you know potentially flowers are are a really 
good way to separate things up into identity because they differentiate um, more discreetly. So a flower of one type is, is easier to recognize as different from another type. But it doesn't necessarily have a functional relationship to our interaction with the landscape, which is, in permaculture, a lot of what we look at is beneficial functional relationships. And so their method of, of identifying things directly connects them with that reality of interface with the landscape, which is, I think, a, a good tool for us to acknowledge and potentially uh, start learning as, as we refocus on being part of the landscape. So the other one was is that you were talking about when he's, he's saying, like, oh, he spends an hour and he gets one cup of food. And <clears throat> one of the things that... Um, the Blackfeet gal was saying was is that usually uh, the people that go out and do the harvesting are going to be um, the women and um, of of many generations, but usually it's going to be the older women. It's like it, it seems like once you get to a certain age, then your job then becomes the household, and so then it's the older women and the younger women, and then the children, including the boys. And then part of what you do is you show the kids, here's what we're trying to harvest. Okay, kids, go up on that mountainside and go get some. <laughs> right. Yeah, so there's, there's, they can have fun doing it, too. And it keeps them occupied right. and teaches them the skills. So there's a lot of uh, multifunctionality embedded in that type of culture. And it, it keeps the people um, occupied and valued, as well as um, allowing people to do what is most effective for them to do at their certain life cycle stage. So she was saying that when she was a kid, then, a, you know, a huge portion of her life was spent crawling all over mountainsides, harvesting stuff. And she didn't really know anything about it. I mean, she kind of, she learned the words and she learned how to identify it and stuff like that, but she didn't really think a lot of it. And then, um, then she went, got into high school and then she, you know, got a, a you know a standard you know kid's life and became a standard teenager, and then she found herself living in Chicago, living a standard life, and then she got a call from her family saying, "Oh, this information needs to be passed down, and we're pa we're going to pass it down to you. You got to come home and start learning this stuff." <laughs> it's like no, <laughs> but she did it. Yeah. And um, and it seems like at this point in time, it it is her life, and she's glad that she did it. Yeah, but and and I think that's a, the important distinction between kind of the Western uh, mentality and, and kind of uh, literature and heritage, and and the North American um, kind of cultural practice and oral history is that they pick a person to to retain and pass on the information, whereas we would write a book. Right, right. So they they have a very different way of doing it, and and it was an awesome presentation to kind of get an idea of not only how it has been done for hundreds of generations, but also to hear this woman talk about how she is doing it, and not only is she doing it, but but part of it seems like you would think like, oh, that's too bad, poor her, but she's grooving on it. You know, and and it's and now she's like uh, she's part of the faculty at the University of Montana for environmental studies or something like that, and um, and so basically she it sounds like this what she does is now her career 
and she works at the university. And potentially spans both worlds. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it did sound like um, a fascinating bit of knowledge for which I, I sitting there listening to, to it just for a couple of hours, I was kind of thinking, man, I am so glad that this information is still here. It's If nothing else, it's just really kind of fascinating and interesting to to try and, and keep this extremely different path alive, just if nothing else, to just know the path existed and exists. Definitely. So I, I was, yeah. So, um, um, all right, moving, moving along. We're in the Purslane family. We've, and we've, and there's three plants in the Purslane family, three genera. And, and I'm, I know I'm, no, genus would be the singular. Genera is the plural, right? Correct. Okay. So there's three genera that I've marked off. The first one we've already talked about, bitterroot. The second one would be miner's lettuce, and the third one we've already kind of covered, purslane. But for miner's lettuce, I have marked off that it's sometimes combined with a different genus, Claytonia. I don't know if that's part of the purslane family or not. Yes, it is. It's here as well. Oh, good. Good. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So miner's lettuce, well, they call that one spring beauty, the Claytonia. And it's also called miner's lettuce. Is it? Miner's lettuce is a poor term because it was assigned to lots and lots of plants. Okay. All right. Miners weren't too picky <laughs> about their lettuces. Right. All right. I, I get you now. All right. So um, apparently four miner's lettuce under the Montia genera. Gen, now am I using the plural? Genus. For the Montia genus, um, mm. then there are 50 species, two of which are in Montana. Um, they they do not have starchy roots, but they are succulent and tasty as a green salad or green salad or pot herb. Medicinally, the tea may be used as a laxative. Sweet, it says sweet. That's why I say sweet. <laughs> um, the common name miner's lettuce is confusing because the name was given to many different wild plants that were eaten by early miners. Um, I, I think when I've eaten miner's lettuce, it does it, it, it is a little bit like purslane. It's like the stems are kind of tender and crispy at the same time. Yeah, and that's a, a quality of this this family. Um, one of the nice things about this book is that he guides us towards these keywords, which help us uh, qualify families a little bit uh, more easily. And for the purslane family, keyword is succulent plants often growing in intense sunlight and two sepals. So that, that kind of a juicy, crispy quality of the stem is because they're succulent plants, which also allows them to have a lot of water and be you know, these useful ground covers, which um, protect the ground from you know, uh, extremes and change of temperature and allow it to succeed up to uh, something with a little bit more stature, and, uh, more of a shrubby type of successional stage potentially. So they're great. So now, great for freshly disturbed areas, which is why purslane often grows in an annual tilled garden. So now, um, succulent, as of this moment, is a word bigger and grander than what I thought it was. I, I up until this moment, I thought succulents were going to refer to like cactuses and aloe vera and and things that have these these really thick leaves. But miner's lettuce doesn't have a thick leaf. And I don't think purslane does either. Purslane has like um, these sparse little tiny leaves, but with these kind of thick, tender stems. 
Right, and, and so when you break I, it open, it's really juicy and wet and kind of yeah. squishy. Yeah. And I think... The, but so, I, I didn't know that it was a succulent. Now I know. I mean, I'm learning. So you are getting I'm some benefit of reading the book. I, well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm being, I'm learning a couple of little tidbits. It's true, and so I, I yeah. So succulent is has a bigger meaning than I thought before. All right. So, um, and then the last thing I've got marked off is purslane itself, originally from India. Oh, and there's a hundred species under Portulaca. Portulaca. The genus Portulaca. Yes. Okay. Um, and and there's so there's there's a hundred species. Only one apparently is native to Montana. Originally from India, the purslane is uncommon in Montana, except in some gardens. It is more prolific further south. The whole plant is quite edible, raw or cooked. Purslane is surprisingly high in carbohydrates, as well as proteins, omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants, and vitamin E. However. It also contains bum, 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 oxalic acid, which blocks the absorption of calcium in the digestive system. Hall says that the plants can be picked and dried, which causes them to use stored moisture to finish developing the seed pods. The dried plants are beaten on a tarp, and the seeds winnowed out, seeds winnowed out for use as a flower. Um... I kind of I, I can't imagine drying them. It, it seems like a kind of a plant that, first of all, being a succulent, to me is like this big indicator of like, oh, that's going to be difficult to dry. They're kind of designed to not dry. They're kind of designed to hold on to their water. So like, if you were to have a bunch of purslane stems, I, I'm I'm having a hard time imagining just throwing the stems into a dehydrator of any kind and having a lot of luck. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I've never tried. To me, I see a lot of the value of the succulent plant being that they tend to grow in areas that are a little bit drier and they're great water storage uh, type organisms. And so why not eat them with all that water? Like out in the garden on a hot day, eat the portulaca and then you don't have to go and get water. Seems like a and good, uh, happy medium. Purslane pers is one that like, I like the taste of it enough, and it's been long enough that I'm actually salivating at the idea of eating purslane. <laughs> like, like I, 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 you know, I want to go check around so I can find some. Um, so when we talk about palatability, I think um, if folks from the garden, they find some. In fact, I would even kind of encourage it. I, I kind of wonder how might you go about encouraging it. Uh, Disturbance and, and bare soil, often. I, I have a hard time imagining where purslane would be a detriment in a garden. I mean, it, it grows, like, right on the ground. So, like, what plant would suffer from having purslane next to it? Uh, it may compete for water and nutrients to a degree, so you might have other plants that grow a little bit less effectively in there. I think that, that would be partly a, a testing and, and trial. Like, you know, grow plants that have different structural relationships. Like you said, it grows right on the ground, so grow plants that grow up through it, like onions and garlic and alliums and then maybe some... Um, mustards or, or chinopods or something like that 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 also uh, kind of grow up and, and out. You might get less purslane because you start to get canopy cover from those, but uh, I think that's a trial and error thing. That A lot of these plant guilds and permaculture are still in that phase of you know thinking it through and doing some trials and, and seeing if you still get that 
over-yielding polyculture type of effect. Right, right. I'm ready to go on to the next family. Are you? Yes. Okay, the goosefoot family. Uh, so this is the dicotyledon class, pink subclass, pink order, goosefoot family, chenopodiaceae. Yeah, I, I usually call them chenopods, um, chenopodiaceae. That's just my personal okay. pronunciation. But they're definitely one of my favorite plant families, uh, in particular because they grow very well in the desert and in alkaline areas. Oh, okay. I've only got one plant I marked off in here. Did you mark off a bunch? Um, I marked off a few, yes. But this is the one that includes lamb's quarters. Correct. Which is, and apparently in that genus is also goosefoot. And I think that, that lamb's quarters and goosefoot are not the same thing, but maybe I'm mistaken about that. I, I think they're different. Okay, all right, all right. So they're two different species in the same genus. Um, and I hope I'm using the word genus correctly in that sentence. So um, domestic chard and beets belong to this family. Although, I don't know, did it show up in this list of stuff? I didn't see it. Uh, no, they didn't put it in here. Oh, oh that's interesting. Um, okay, so domestic chard and beets belong in this subfamily. Spinach belongs to the genus Spinaceae. So does that mean that, that spinach is in the goosefoot family? That's correct, yes. Well, why isn't it in here? I don't know. Spinach seems like an important one, even if it's wild. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it seems like maybe you just put in ones that are native or found in Montana, for the most part. Or, or North I don't America. I don't, I'm not sure. No, because, I mean... He put in other stuff that's not native, so I don't know why. But um, they're mentioned in the text, but not included in the list. Sugar beets are grown in parts of Montana and processed for sugar. And and so I think an interesting thing about the whole sugar beet thing is that um, uh, have you ever had the Theo's chocolates? No. So so they uh, um, there's like twelve uh, grinders in the world that will that will get the chocolate beans, the cocoa beans, and, and grind them. And then most of the chocolate places in the world are what they call melters, where they um, get big blocks of chocolate from the grinders, and then they melt it and make their chocolatey goodness. Um, but uh, uh, Theo's is one of the grinders, one of the 12 grinders, and they do only organic fair trade stuff. Um, but they've they've got like these uh, uh, different chocolate bars. Each one represents the the region of the world that it came from. Rather than just mixing all the, the chocolate together, they they are very particular about like oh let's let's find out what the flavor is like from that part of the world. And uh, so what they'll do is it it'll have precisely two ingredients. It'll have chocolate and beet sugar. They feel like. Beet sugar is the best sugar, and um, and of course it's organic and all that stuff. But um, I thought it was kind of interesting. You can, the best sugar that you can get is something that you can grow in Montana, and in fact, it, it's it was a major crop at one point in Montana. Beet sugar. Yeah, and I would uh, also encourage people to do some some research. I'm not positive whether or not um, sugar beets have had a genetic modification introduced into the commercial production or industrial production. So uh, that would be something I would encourage people to, to double-check on. But sugar beets right. and uh, mangles, which are another relative, 
are, are great fodder crops, and they produce gigantic roots with large quantities of, of sugar and carbohydrates. A really good kind of winter fodder crop for animals and stuff. I've I've seen cattle grab um, a mango or a sugar beet, um, and and pull it out of the ground and then eat it, which struck me as kind of odd because I always kind of thought of cattle as like not being root eaters but but being just grazers. But apparently once in a while they kind of get the idea of <laughs> how this works and they'll pull it out of the ground and 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 uh, knock the dirt off of it and eat it. It's a um, good fodder crop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I always kind of thought maybe they just like the tops or something like that. And then I was kind of like, well, if you're going to dig down, that's going to be more like pigs. Pigs will root up anything. Right. But um, And then I know that some people will cut the mangles, but um, I, I think a lot of animals will be able to, to get through it on their own without having it cut up. I hope so. So uh, the goose family, most plants in this family are edible and are rich in calcium and other minerals. Uh, they are largely adapted to disturbed, salty, or alkaline soils and are prone to accumulating both selenium and nitrogen. The nitrogen often appears in plants as dun, 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 oxalates. Boy, we're, this is like a theme. Ironically, oxalates can inhibit the body's ability to absorb calcium, where have we heard that before, and should not be consumed for extended periods of time. Many species in the goosefoot family accumulate salts from the soil. The plants can be utilized as salt substitutes, either whole or burned in the ashes used. The seeds of most species are also edible. Saponins are also common in the family. So I'm kind of thinking, like, what if you're, like, oh, I don't know, in a deserty area where salty soils are a problem? I mean... I wonder if you could grow a bunch of this stuff and start moving the salt out of the field. Yeah, I think that's a very valid technique. And I think that's one that people do use. Uh, and in particular, things like saltbush, uh, atroplex genus, are great forage plants. And, and goats love to browse on them, and, and so do other animals. And, and so you can then not only move the salt out of the soil, um, and some of it will return in the manure, but you turn it into meat that's a saleable item that then gets exported off of the ground. And that's, that's a reasonable way, I think, to, over long periods of time, generate income from remediating salt-affected soils. So now I've heard of, like, certain kinds of plants will, will like, really bring in the salt, and it effectively stores it in its wood. So soil that would grow nothing at all, you would plant some of these plants in it, they draw so much salt out of the soil and store it in its own wood as the plant is alive that the soil then becomes, like other stuff starts to grow. But then, yeah, the, eventually the plant dies and then that salt returns to the soil and then things don't grow again unless you keep a lot of that stuff going. But it seems like, yeah, there's two ways. Either tie it up into woody materials and plants so that way it's, you know, up off the ground anyway, or tie it up in that kind of plant and then take the plant away before it has a chance to return the salt back to the soil. Right. Yeah, and I think that it's a, it's a complex scenario and that the solution probably needs to be systematic um, and systemic rather than uh, a single type of linear pathway. Uh, you sure. know, uh, and for example, uh, 
by increasing the overall organic matter content, you increase the cation exchange capacity, which means there's more places for salts to actually adsorb in the soil, which means that they're less available in solution at any given point in time. So that's one method if you can increase organic matter. Less dominant, anyway. Right. I mean, it's like it's like you've got this certain amount of fixed amount. You've got you've got 80 units of salt salty bits in your soil, and you've got 100 parking spaces for um, cation exchange capacity, and so you've got um, 80 out of 100, you know, taking up those parking spaces. But if you go if you bump from 100 to 10,000, then all the salts park there, but you got lots of parking for everything else. Right, yeah, and and when the soil gets moistened, not everything is in, goes directly into solution. True, true, but I think salt readily does go into solution. Yeah, and and the yeah. other thing that's associated with organic matter is living organisms. So when you have a whole suite of microbes, those also require salt in their tissue for them to live, um, and so they will also immobilize it to a degree. Again, this is the thing where it's systemic. So one single pathway does not necessarily manage uh, and create a solution. So that's where you have, you know, your salt-tolerant plants that generate organic matter, your animals that come in and eat them and export that salt off the site, Um, potentially some rainwater or rain-fed type of scenario where you get movement of that that salt um, to spread it out a little bit more as long as you've dealt with the influx of it it's not it's not a simple situation I guess is what I'm getting at and it, it yeah. takes a you know well thought out plan um, to, to deal with it because salt is such a strong inhibitor to many plants growing but the goosefoot family in particular is a great way to approach it and so are the brassicas the mustards and uh, I think something that's interesting to me that is similar between the two of those, is that neither of them form mycorrhizal associations either. So What, 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 what? Right, yeah. And my understanding, which is... Say that again. Neither of them yes. form mycorrhizal? Ne- neither, neither the brassicas nor the chinopods are mycorrhizal plants. They're one of the... or uh, two of the exceptions to the fact that most plants have fungal symbiosis, and mycorrhizal in particular. Whoa! I didn't know that there were plants that were not into the 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 fungi dance, and they may have some other fungal type of associations. I'm not sure, but my understanding is that they don't have mycorrhizal associations. Wow! 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 That is so weird. I yeah, I had I didn't know that. Um, I'm I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. They tend to grow in alkaline soils, salty soils, low organic matter soils, high pH soils, and fungus prefer those lower pHs for the most part. And and they also uh, um, grow well in uh, recently disturbed soils, which fungals do not care for disturbance. And so um, one of the reasons why we advocate no-till. Correct. So that the fungals can get time to build up and, and do their do their um, you know awesome fungalness. Wow, that is that is um, I'm, I'm gonna have to, I'm, it's gonna take me a week to digest that I think. Um, so wow, that's intense. they're often good pioneer plants to associate with your legumes and nitrogen fixers because they grow so well without those associations. Interesting, interesting. 
Very good points. Very, very good permaculture points. And something I had never even considered. The one, the one um, genre that uh, I have marked off is uh, Chino Podium. Right. Am I... Okay, is that, is that how you would pronounce it? You betcha. Yeah, and I actually no uh, did some double-checking, and lamb's quarters and goosefoot, as far as I can tell, are the same plant. They're just different names for Chinopodium alba. Because alba. At, I, as I'm reading through this description that he's got for it, it kind of seems like it says, here's some stuff about lamb's quarters, and now here's some stuff about goosefoot. So he kind of... But maybe maybe it is the same, and but I, I kind of was getting the impression that he was saying that they're different, but he didn't clearly say that they're different, and he didn't clearly say that they're the same. Right, which is why common names are confusing, and people tend towards the scientific name when they really get into uh, plant identification. Okay, which you know, so this is sort of the this, this is the plant from the goosefoot family. Of all the uh, the the hundreds of species, I'm trying to verify that there are. Ooh, there's 1,500 species in the goosefoot family. So now we're talking about the plant that is goosefoot out of the entire goosefoot family. Um, and uh, so focusing for a moment on lamb's quarters, lamb's quarters got its popular name from its habit of growing in disturbed manure-rich soils like barnyards. Um, delicious salad green, highly nutritious. It contains more calcium than any other plant ever analyzed, plus lots of riboflavin, vitamins A and C, and protein. Wow. So this is this plant, this lamb's quarters, which I've eaten a lot of lamb's quarters. And, um, uh, but I, I mean, like, I haven't eaten a lot, like, uh, like I, I probably eat, not even a quarter pound a year, but it's like you go out there and like, oh, there's lamb's quarters, and I pluck some off and I eat it, and it, I think it tastes fine. Um, and uh, I had no idea that it was so heavy in calcium. Plus, you know, when when we talk about um, plants to plant under fruit trees, you know, we want plants that are going to accumulate calcium. Because um, then they slough it off, and then uh, the the fruit trees tend to benefit from a little ex- extra calcium. And uh, um, I never heard of uh, intentionally planting lamb's quarters under a fruit tree for that benefit. So I I wonder why that might be. Maybe I'm guessing it doesn't have a taproot. Oh uh, no, I think a lot of these plants do have taproots. I think a lot of the the goosefoot plants grow a taproot type of root. And they're pretty thick roots, actually. Good for, again, that pioneering process of breaking up compacted soil. Uh, and then they also do the, the sucking up with salts. And um, they're often growing in really dry areas, so they need some sort of kind of water storage mechanism uh, that helps them get through the dry periods. I'm pretty sure a lot of them have a, a pretty thick, starchy taproot. The the beets have a pretty thick root. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's that's you know we're getting in there. All right, so <clears throat> I just had no idea it was such a, a nutrition powerhouse. Uh, you know, like a, effectively a, a superfood. Lamb's quarter. Yeah, and it's, awesome. it's great to know that that calcium component too, because that's you know another one of those limitations as we're moving through our successional pattern of making sure that we have bioavailable nutrients, and in particular, calcium is the gateway to many of the other bioavailable nutrients. Right. 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 So, um, I'm ready to go on to the next family. You got you got anything else? Um, I'll quickly cycle through a couple things. Uh, 
in my area in particular, we have Kochia, which is a, a genus, and also uh, Salsola, or Russian thistle. And both of those, it says here, are edible as young shoots, which to me was interesting because, uh, and even used as salt. Um, so it, it's neat to know that these potentially kind of invasive weeds are, are edible and that the young shoots, which is um, when they're not as, as frustrating to deal with, is a great time to pick them and use them as salt uh, in our salads and things like that. Um, so that that was interesting to me. And then another plant that's often a really salty plant is salicornia, which grows uh, kind of in, in the salt marshes and things like that, uh, along, and is native to Western North America, or at least some species are. So I thought those were interesting things to to read more about. So now, uh, yeah, let's move on to the next family. The amaranth family. So this is the dicotyledon class, pink subclass, pink order, Amaranth family, Amaranthaceae. <clears throat> I've got marked off, uh, the Amaranth and Goosefoot families are closely related and share some similar properties. Yeah, for me, I often have a tough time telling the difference exactly, and, and I get confused, like, um, which which is which. So it's good to know that at least they're similar and that my confusion isn't um, totally unfounded. Well, now, I, I've always kind of think of... Um, I don't know. It seems like a lot of times whenever I see uh, lamb's quarters, I, it seems like I'm bound to also see pigweed. Right. They they just seem to hang out together a lot. Um, and and so pigweed is basically amaranth. Um, and and so we're talking about. I mean, in fact, where's the part where it talks about how many species there are? Oh, there's 900 species in the amaranth family. 60 to 65 genera, and only one genera is listed in the book. Um, and that's going to be Amaranthus. So, um, uh, but I um, I think when they're small, it, it can be a little challenging to tell them apart, now that I think about it. Although, I always kind of think like lamb's quarters, it's easy because the underneath has kind of got a white, chalky-ish looking thing, and, and pigweed tends to be red underneath. Mm-hmm. Although some lamb's quarters are red underneath, and some pigweeds have those kind of crystally uh, patternings underneath. <laughs> Again, it's, it's where you know, sometimes it's not not that simple. But uh, they they are both often associated with disturbed soils, and they both have you know these big thick roots and can be used to to break up soils and potentially suck up salts and nutrients and balance that that uh, kind of mineral balance in the soil. There's apparently worldwide there are 50 species of amaranthus uh, in the world and seven uh, native to Montana. Uh, several other plants are called pigweeds as well, so amaranth is clearly the better name. Um, uh, amaranth leaves are tender, stem tips are edible. Uh, they rank among the most nutritious wild greens there are, especially high in iron. Calcium, protein, and vitamin C. So another another superfood. Um, and I've I've eaten a fair amount of pigweed. I don't like the pigweed as much as the lamb's quarters. Um, and that's just eating the leaves. But then of course you know the big thing is 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 the seeds. And and um, <clears throat> I think it was in one of Jeff Lawton's videos where he's like, take a look here on the ground. Look at this. Uh, we've got wild amaranth growing here as a weed. So. Here's what we did: is we planted amaranth, 
And so then he's got, he's like showing this stuff growing near the ground. It's like a foot tall. Oh, look, it's all over the place. It's weed. So we planted this stuff, and it's like seven feet tall, <laughs> you know, covered with those big, bushy, uh, uh, maroon-colored things at the top that have got all the seeds in them, the, the bazillions of tiny seeds. Yeah, and, and they're the really beautiful flower clusters, and it's a great grain. And I personally like the leaves a little bit better if they're, they're uh, lightly steamed. I feel like that that helps to to temper some of like that oxalic acid and stuff like that in them. Um, and another thing that was interesting to me here is that both the chinopods and the amaranth have the tendency to accumulate nitrates. So not not a great thing to feed to children um, or young children at least. You know, as as they get a little bit older, he says six months of age. I, I might even go for like three years um, to play it safe because I'm not a doctor and I don't really know all, all the details on how that works. Um, and also animals, uh, in, in particular horses, are often poisoned by plants high in nitrates. So just, just things to keep in mind uh, as to why these are considered weeds in some for some reasons, at least. Okay. All right. But I'm ready to go on to the next family. Are you? Yeah, definitely. The next family is the buckwheat family. Still in the pink subclass, but now we've gone to the buckwheat order. So everything else that we just covered is in the pink order. And so out of the pink, and then in the pink subclass, pink order. And now we're going to, this is the only family, the only thing that we're going to cover that's the pink subclass buckwheat order. And and I think one cool thing is is that this is actually something that I knew a little bit. I, I've always known that, well, I shouldn't say always. I've known for a long time that um, rhubarb has kin to buckwheat, even though they are two so very radically different plants. And and granted, they they it turns out now that I'm looking at this book, I get to have the uh, the exact relationships you know clarified for me as far as like uh, you know uh, how it fits into the world of botany. Um, so they are both of the buckwheat family, um, and they they are of but they're of different genera. So uh, common rhubarb is of the rheum uh, genus, and um, uh, wow, do I not have it in here? Where's um, here's wild buckwheat? Buckwheat buckwheat itself is in the phagopyrum genus. Yes, um, um, and so not only that, there's the wild buckwheat and the cultivated cereal grain buckwheat are, are different genus. So when you hear people say right. buckwheat, it can mean a whole lot of different things. <laughs> so it's all, always good to try to clarify some of those things. Um, you know, the wild buckwheat wheats are all areogonum, and then the phagopyrum is the cereal buckwheat that we often grow as a cover crop. Right, right. And then I didn't see anywhere, maybe I didn't read it thoroughly enough, I didn't see anywhere where it talked about, like, one of the things that both plants, so, you know, so when we talk about buckwheat and we talk about rhubarb, um, and then later it even talks about uh, dock and sorrel, um, but when, it's also part of the buckwheat family, but um, in permaculture, one, or in gardening, even just gardening, one of the big things that you use buckwheat for is to break up really tough soils, like if you've got some hard clay or um, you've got just dirt soil, um, no organic matter, and it's like uh, you just kind of want to get things rolling and established and moving forward, buckwheat is is like one of the, the, the first plants you turn to 
it's like you know any any time where it's like oh the soil is crappy it's it's like oh grow buckwheat yeah and and like Seth Holzer's stuff it's like he's got buckwheat growing everywhere on everything <laughs> no just all the damn time and it's like this great plant where it's like when it when you start um when it's mixed in with everything else it just has this amazing taproot that can it's like the the plant stem itself is crazy tender but then the root is like is is like um this this power drill it'll like get down tap down through damn near anything and and um and it seems to be hell bent on going down as opposed to like spreading around the surface and it so it seems like a lot of the plants and families actually in the pink subclass and pink order and buckwheat order uh fulfill that same functional pattern of breaking up compacted soil and uh, succeeding out as pioneer plants in recently disturbed areas and you know, remediating salt or other issues that, that are, make it difficult for other plants to grow. Wow. Okay. Now, um, uh, rhubarb is one of my favorite plants. Um, and the, the comment he, he, that uh, he has in here is, uh, the chopped stems make great pies, but the leaves contain toxic levels of calcium oxalate. Um, I've always known, you know, uh, apparently the Chinese will use bits of the leaves um, as uh, a kind of a medicinal thing to um, help you poop. Um, and so I always kind of thought, like, if you ate lots of the leaves, you might die of pooping. <laughs> you might poop too much. Um and uh, uh, I think that's so called a, a dysentery. Oh, is that? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Pooping to death. Uh, um, I, I've uh, so I've always kind of thought that the leaves were were um, powerful. Uh, you know, and and you know you could consider it toxic. It's, it's medicinal. Anytime you eat a medicine too much, that's one form of toxicity. However, it's like when the chickens are in there, the chickens eat the leaves, and the deer. Um, I was uh, somebody was asking me the other day, what do I do? Um, they, I, I want to grow rhubarb, but the deer keep coming down and eating all the rhubarb leaves, and um, and I, I'm kind of thinking, really? <laughs> but what about that part where it's supposed to make you poop to death? Um, uh, so I, I'm I'm baffled now. As of as of a year ago, I was pretty adamant, like best to leave the leaves alone. Use them, you know, compost them, um, you know. Uh, um, nothing wants to eat them, and it's like. Uh, and but I saw even even more than a year ago. I saw the chickens like they. If you left chickens in with a rhubarb plant, they would eat all of the leaves. But they'll eat, they'll eat all the poisonous plants. And so, it's 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 not so much that it's like they like to eat it is what I've always thought. It's not so much that they like to eat it. It's that if you don't give them other things to eat, then they will eat that even though it's not good for them. Right. I think there's a, a few kind of clarifying factors there. But first, the one that you just stated is important, is that animals, when corralled in an area for too long, will eat whatever's there, which means yeah. they'll eat the poisonous plants to the point where it kills them. Um, a lot yeah. of those poisonous plants, uh, when taken in appropriate dosages or mixed with other plants or things like that, actually act as wormers and other uh, beneficial medicines, as you mentioned. So dosage, the poison's in the dosage. Uh, and then a final thing is that mammals and birds are distinctly different. So things that are poisonous to one aren't necessarily poisonous to another. Um, and insects, for example, you know, a lot of insects can eat plants that are poisonous. So just like we have different classes and orders in the plant kingdom, we have that in, in the animal kingdom. And so different things are poisonous to different 
classes and orders it to differing degrees. Um, and then even within that, you know, things that are poisonous to a horse aren't poisonous to a cow. Um, right. So, you know, deer, you know, potentially have very different tolerances than humans do to these things. Which right. is deer and goats can take on a lot of tannic acid, right? Which is great from from a permaculture perspective, which is also often why permaculture and vegetarianism are not necessarily um, totally compatible. In that one, there's not really any ecosystem on the planet that doesn't have animals, uh, and, and two, when you start to get to these cold climates or dry climates, and you need something that is able to store nutrients or eat things that are growing out there naturally, animals often become that critical link in the food, food web. Right. Not to say that there are okay. choices out there, but I think it's important to acknowledge the roles that animals play in ecosystem health also, as well as the opportunities they play for keeping people fed. So for rhubarb, the big thing is is that um, I know that there are many, many varieties of rhubarb. And um, uh, what to, to me, I just feel like it's one of the most amazing plants. It's, it's almost impossible to kill. has an amazingly deep taproot. Um, it it uh, uh, just produces great big gobs of those stalks, which I think end up being really delicious and prepared in all kinds of ways. I know people. Some people eat rhubarb stalks raw. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I've I tried it once, and uh, it's like I I do think it needs uh, something to make it a little bit sweeter. I, I um, agree, but and you can also eat the the flower stalks. I think and the flower heads even. Oh really? I think that that's something you know. Do some due diligence, double checking. But that's my understanding. Okay. All right. The uh, other genre I've got marked off is rumex which is for your uh, docks and sorrels. The docks and sorrels are all edible to varying degrees. The sorrels have a lemony taste due to the oxalic acid. There it is again. Uh-huh. <laughs> the docks are often unpalatable due to excessive levels of oxalic and or tannic acid. Cooking them as a pot herb, and there's a typo there, and changing the water once or twice may tame them sufficiently. So that's that's the end of all the stuff I've got marked out for the pink subclass. Yep, and that's the, the end of it. Next, we're on to the mallow subclass. All right, next time, mallows. Like marshmallows, exactly like marshmallows, only completely different. <laughs> and including them. <laughs> <laughs> right, so... Um, Anyway, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about rhubarb, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.